Find out what the whole world is thinking in The Agenda. This week on The Agenda, Britain has a new Prime Minister. But what will Liz Truss's time at number 10 mean for the UK's position on the world stage? Britain now has its fourth Conservative Prime Minister in just six years. Liz Truss inherits from Boris Johnson an inbox filled with domestic crises, energy prices, inflation and industrial action. But as a former Foreign Secretary, she'll also want to make her mark on the global stage. What might that actually look like in a post-Brexit world? Well, with me now are Professor Amelia Hadfield, Dean International and Head of the Politics Department at the University of Surrey, and Samuel Jinghuang Yin, Professor at the School of International Relations and Public Affairs at Fudan University. Great to see both of you again. Amelia, I'm going to start with you because Liz Truss, she's known as a foreign policy hardliner. You know, geopolitics is really her thing. So where do you think she's going to flex those muscles first? She's got a, a wide range of options, uh, if I'm honest. You're right, she is an avowed uh, Brexiteer. And she's already, I think, you know, packed her cabinet with pretty pro-Brexit, even sort of ultras, if you like, and some right-wing colleagues. And I think what she's trying to say in terms of foreign policy messaging, you know, is that uh, Britain is determined to stand on its own two feet after the bruises of Brexit. There is some bridge building uh, to be uh, to be done, to be reconstructed with Europe. Britain has I think provided some decent leadership, quite credible leadership, and certainly a lot of humanitarian support as a result of the Ukraine war. And I think Truss is going to want to see that continue, certainly, as well as British leadership in NATO. The trickier territory, I think, for me, will be how Truss wants to approach uh, the European Union, because, of course, the, the jury is still out at this at, at this point as to the degree of, of connectedness, if you like, that, that Britain really wants to put together in its foreign and security policy with the, with the European Union. I think in the last couple of days, what we've seen are sort of suggestions that there may, may be a sort of good cop, bad cop approach between uh, Truss on the one side and, and, and the European Union on the other. She's had one or two gaffes. She's had a, a misstep in trying to figure out whether uh, Macron, Emmanuel Macron, the uh, French president, is a friend or foe. That didn't go down particularly well, so we want to try to avoid those in the future. <laughs> but von der Leyen, the uh, Commission yeah. President, European Commission President, actually was very, very good, very, very receptive and said that the EU, EU and the UK are partners. So there's lots to play for. You mentioned friend or foe. So I, I'm interested to, to think, Professor, and what do you think? Well, we have a continuation of the, the Boris Johnson stance on, on Russia on China and the rest of the world? Short answer to that question is yes. I believe as much as this trust wants to present herself as a younger Thatcher, she's actually more of a Boris Johnson plus than she would actually agree. And so in this sense, uh, we can see that the first phone call she made to a foreign leader after being elected as the, as the uh, uh, leader of the Conservative Party was to uh, um, uh, to Zelensky, and uh, it shows her de uh, devotion to the uh, idea that she will carry on what Bar Boris Johnson has started. And uh, her uh, traditionally, she's been very hardline against China. So I think China card would uh, also be very important to her. Emilia, if we look at this a recent review of the UK's external goals, that talked about the UK's new freedom to pursue different economic and political approaches where it suits our interests. How do you think that's going to play into to what Professor Yun was saying and what you were saying earlier about the EU? 
I think there will be a transatlantic dimension to it, to be honest. So I, I, I'd be surprised if the United Kingdom, you know, was any less cozy with the United States. So I think that'll be a key component. But I think there are good opportunities for trust to look at rebuilding relations with, with the, the European Union. We need to remember that before she was foreign minister, she was trade minister. And I think she set her sights on trying to work those bilateral trades into the sort of post-Brexit framework, if you like. So I think whether it's Singapore, Malaysia, you know, in, in, in the uh, in the global south, if you like, or Australia, um, or whether it's the United States and Canada or the, or the European Union, she, she has a basket of options here that she can really choose. And, and we need to remember, it's one thing to be, you know, a pugnacious, punchy foreign minister, and, and to be quite tough um, in, in remarks on China and, and Russia, but very, very different to be prime minister, uh, and to represent much more strategic national goals. Do you think, though, um, Professor Yin, uh, we're overestimating perhaps um, the UK's position, especially when it comes to trade with places like China? You know, they've got this global Britain agenda, the vision of restoring um, Britain's maritime greatness as a trading system. I mean, is China even interested? Well, I will have to, uh, I mean, fund fundamentally, I agree that uh, what Amelia just said, the Anglo-American alliance is the most of the key components in this trust uh, uh, arsenal. So in this sense, I would say that uh, China would play a less important role in her uh, foreign policy, in her decision making. Um, but, uh, in fact, uh, China, to, to particularly to China, Sure, there is a willingness on both sides, particularly on China's side, to continue on this relationship, particularly the economic connection with uh, with with UK. UK in the past years has always been the most important foreign investment place for China. But having said that, I think the political trend has turned, and uh, there is very little wiggle room for this trust and the existing. Um, um, Conservative Party leadership to actually do anything. And Amelia, what about that wiggle room when it comes to um, the EU? Because that relationship between the UK and the European Union after Brexit still needs quite a lot of finessing. And you know, the stalemate on the Northern Ireland Protocol, fishing disputes, that's eroded the UK's capacity to cooperate to an extent with the EU on, on foreign and security policy. Where do you think Liz Truss is going to position herself? You're right. I mean, there is definitely an impasse uh, between the two sides. But if she wants a win and a win that would make sense to both sides, I think trying to you know warm up that relationship makes makes a lot of sense. I think there's two ways she can do it. One is the European political community framework. This is a sort of broad idea that was outlined, outlined by French President Emmanuel Macron. And the idea, I think, is to pull together like minded democracies. The first uh, meeting that they will have of that is in October. And I think uh, if, if an invitation is given to the UK and if it's received and she goes, either she goes or perhaps uh, the new foreign minister, uh, James Cleverly, goes, that would be a, a, a very good sign, I think, that Britain remains interested. And the second one, briefly, of course, is the re, re examining the Northern Ireland bill that's currently making its way to the House of Commons. Um, if that's stopped, um, and perhaps even if it's scrapped, I think the signal will be both to, to um, Belfast and Dublin on the one side and Brussels on the other, that the trust government is interested in pressing the reset button and looking at it in a different way. So, Professor Ian, what's the wider world take then on the UK and the EU's relationship um, post-Brexit? Does Liz Truss need to realise that countries like China are unlikely to do anything pro-UK 
that upsets the EU? Well, I think from the China's perspective, uh, uh, it's as a general principle, uh, we need to acknowledge that each country would have to make their own foreign policy and decision making based on realistic uh, circumstances. So China is, of course, one of them. And uh, in the past, China has always been um, a strong, very strong about non-interference and uh, sort of non-alliances policy. So in this sense, I would not say that China would do anything to upset uh, to upset either side or uh, to be very strongly pro one side. China has always considered UK as a very important partner, same as China considering EU as important partner. I would speculate that in the future, uh, even if there is some conf- confrontation or tension between EU and the UK, China would not stand aside. The most concerning problem for China at the moment is uh, how this uh, UK Anglo-American alliance pans out. And uh, Amelia, she's been accused of being a little bit too glib in the past. You you mentioned um, the, the, the clangor when it came to uh, Macron, you know, those um, final Conservative hustings. Macron's response was that Britain's considered a friend, sometimes despite grandstanding um, from their leaders. So what do you think it says about the kind of prime minister that she's going to be? It's a good question. I, I think you, you do tend to get gaffes, particularly in the high pressure cooker that is a that is a hosting. So I wasn't completely surprised to see that. But as prime minister, it, you know, it's really best to avoid that, that that sort of thing. And upsetting one's sort of oldest bilateral uh, partner and neighbor is, is not a is not a great start. Equally, I mean, Macron knows as well as trust that you can, you know, you can you can play to your domestic audience by being pretty robust, particularly uh, when you're campaigning for election or re-election. And you, you know that it's it's going to be not very pleasantly, you know, uh, reported on across the channel. But there will be pragmatism and an acceptance that, you know, it's a different type of audience when they meet. And I hope it's quite soon. They certainly have a lot to talk about because the British-French relationship is a its a real microcosm, if you like, of Britain's ability to translate its post-Brexit identity with the rest of the European Union. You've got a physical proximity, a teeny tiny amount of space across the English Channel. But across that space, you get trains, you get, you get, you get ferries, you get a huge amount of passenger traffic as well as commercial traffic. And you get, of course, migrant and and a asylum um, issues and dynamics, both sides have really failed to uh, get get to grips with that. So Britain needs to work, I think, more proactively, if I can put it this way, with France. And in doing so, I think we'll probably demonstrate to the rest of the European Union that now, hopefully under the trust government, relations with the European Union itself can be more favourably looked upon. It's interesting you talk about identity, and I'd like to bring Professor Yim back in here, because some might argue that the UK had it all, standing out amongst its EU partners for its wealth of foreign policy resources and connections, membership of key global organisations, London status uh, as a financial centre and world-class universities uh, and media. Do you think that gave the UK international influence that maybe transcended its true economic and demographic weight? I think it does in a way, because I personally studied in the UK for a long time and I lived in the places where it used to be British colonies. And the, you can still see the so-called soft power influences existing over there. So in a sense, um, it is OK to say that uh, UK, UK's soft power transcends its real economic power. 
I would be also very cautious in extending that sort of uh, um, statement so conclusively because the uh, economic and, uh, and cultural influences of the UK is part of the UK identity. And we can also see that uh, the, the city, uh, the city still has its strong uh, economic influences across the, across the world. Whether or not we can call it UK or British influence is another question. However, they still, they're still physically located in the UK. They're still extending their impact across the globe. Uh, people still recognizing that the sort of the British university, particularly those influential ones, uh, in a favorable fashion. So, yeah. Media, I see you nodding along uh, to, to, to what he was saying there. Anything to add? Yeah, absolutely. And, and if I if I can, I'll probably tell the university that I work at, sorry, which has and has really enjoyed, I think, you know, um, along with many other British universities, very warm relations with, with lots of, you know, China based universities as well as others around the world. And I think the soft power point is, is a good one because you get institutions, you know, like the British Council, which are lovely connective tissues, if you like. They they operate in in China. They help support British universities in working up collaborative partnerships, finding those those research connections, supporting mobility. Um, so I think there continues to be a lot kind of off the high stakes political radar that will, you know, will 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 uh, tick over very nicely between the, between the two countries. Um, and I, don't, I think if I can just say, I mean, the European Union will continue to work pragmatically with 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 China. Um, it got very close to, you know, signing and finalizing a a, a very very comprehensive, you know, investment uh, treaty. I think at this point it's something on the back burner, but it does demonstrate. I think you know the will on either side that can exist, you know, when there when there is a sense of of, of aligned interests. So I, I could certainly see that. I'd, I'd like to say that high, higher education, I think, is one of Britain's best known um, sort of brands, if you like, along with things like the, the the BBC. And it's a combination, isn't it, of of soft power emblems, but the willingness to resort to some aspects of hard power um, and and support in Ukraine or launching of the new AUKUS uh, relationship with um, Australia and the United yeah. States. So it's always it's always that balance. You mentioned the war in Ukraine, and I'd like your, both of your views on this one. We'll start with you, Professor Ian. The conflict has reignited those Cold War conversations, hasn't it? Certainly about the nuclear race um, and the threat of nuclear war. Now, NATO's strategy rates Russia as the greatest and most immediate threat to the security of allies and to peace and stability in the Euro-Atlantic area. The, the response is a massive rearmament effort. I mean, where, where do you think that the UK is in all of that? I have to say this, is, it's very saddening to see this kind of uh, escalating uh, the rhetorics on both sides, sort of the Cold War mentality and the Cold War uh, discourse has been quite influential and um, sadly has been used by many of the uh, uh, party leaders on uh, either side as a campaign tool. In the, the, I would call it, this is a sad reality in a depoliticized uh, world, uh, whereas the uh, parliamentary party has its, has lost its true connection with its, its uh, electorals, with its people. Um, so henceforth, in order to win a campaign, they have to mobilize some sort of rhetoric that can gain their most support. Sadly, at the moment, it's the rhetoric of uh, friends and foe. I would also circle back to the previous question. This could jeopardize the willingness among the people, among the higher educations, among the uh, among the general publics, the willingness to collaborate, to cooperate, to work together with each other. 
and uh, be uh, the voice of Cold War being too overwhelmingly heard in the in the in the public media is definitely a warning sign. Emilia, a warning sign, a sad reality? Yeah, I mean, the Ukraine crisis has really shaken up Europe. We've not seen this much uh, volatility and threat, high, high level threat, really, since the end of the Second World War. We had a few blips in the Cold War, but this is the most serious situation ever. Britain has walked straight into it, obviously, and it's had to do so not being a member of the European Union, but being a very strong member of, of NATO. So I'm not surprised to see quite uh, robust, quite of you know, sort of phlegmatic um, uh, approaches here. We've seen, obviously, the uh, the sending over the export of, of hardware of weapons uh, support with personnel humanitarian support as well huge amount of monetary support so that's sort of proactive money support and then the sort of reactive sanctions as well and of, of course opening doors uh, to to various uh, Ukrainian migrants who come as far as the United Kingdom so it's been a, a kind of a full fat approach to supporting and trying to resuscitate but beyond that I mean Professor Yen's right we've got we've got a very quite a dangerous sort of rhetoric um, now as to post post Cold War, if you like, uh, Europe and the, the way in which Ukraine now is a uh, it's an absolute tinderbox with a, with a high likelihood of getting much, much worse uh, at, at any point. I really hope it doesn't. Um, but I think at this point there are, there are one or two big crises yet to come. We'll take a short break there, but stay with us as still to come here on the agenda. We'll ask whether Liz Truss might take a more independent approach to foreign relations in future. Find out what the whole world is thinking in The Agenda. Welcome back to The Agenda. Still with me to consider the future of foreign policy under Britain's new Prime Minister Liz Truss are Professor Amelia Hadfield, Dean International and Head of the Politics Department at the University of Surrey, and Zhu Ying, Professor at the School of International Relations and Public Affairs at Fudan University. I'd like to shift our conversation now to talking more about the relationship between the UK and China. Um, Professor Yin, Liz Truss has made her stance on China pretty clear. Uh, you know, she said that if China failed to play by global rules, it would cut short its rise as a superpower and warned it should learn from the West's robust economic response to Russia's military action um, in Ukraine. What do you think is behind that aggressive approach? Sadly, I think this is uh, sort of this rhetoric is the last thing I really want to see. Uh, because you can you can see that the list trust before she was elected as a, as the um, conservative leader has had this sort of rhetoric presenting to the public, and I was co quite concerned that uh, she was elected as the conservative leader because of that. If that's the that's the that, that turns out to be true, I, we could only expect uh, expect that Liz Truss would escalate her rhetoric, her hostility against China, as a way to mobilize people. Uh, going back to the uh, good old friends of fold rhetoric and trying to win the next election by uh, scaring people into choosing um, conservative party because there is an imminent threat coming from China, which is of course not true. And on the China side, I would also say that uh, this trust understanding of China is far from uh, China's own, uh, or at least China's attempt to present its own image. First of all, China has never recognized itself being a superpower and has never wanted to be a superpower in the globe. China has always advocated the importance of cooperation and mutual respect. So in this sense, we could see that uh, uh, trying to pigeonhole China into a um, Cold War rhetoric of being one 
of the superpowers is really not helping to de-escalate the circumstance um, to, uh, on a more sort of uh, optimistic front. I think it, the world, uh, after that many crises, the world is ready to see or an alternative or understanding of the world order, um, a sort of understanding of the world, not by whoever is the superpower makes the call, but try to understand the possibility that uh, cooperation among the equals could really be the future to, uh, um, to global prosperity. And we just need to have the willingness and the uh, sort of uh, the intention, the willingness and a, 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 a pinch of hope um, to embrace that reality. As Foreign Secretary Liz Truss was sometimes scornful of the so-called special relationship between the United Kingdom um, and the United States, citing Britain's better trade relations with Canada, with Japan, with Mexico, as well as a dispute over steel tariffs um, with the US. Now, as Prime Minister, is she going to see the United States as the UK's principal partner? Yes, I think it is sort of incumbent on on the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom to use that sort of heritage, that North Atlantic heritage. Nobody wants to really set that aside. I, ju I just think there's perhaps more of a balance now than there ever was before. Um, the, the push to recognize and continue to work with the European Union uh, as, as well as the United States. But I'm, <laughs> to some extent, I'm saying this as a Canadian because I, I always try to try to make those links. Um, the trade relations that you sp spoke of, and it's, it's a really important point you raise, you know, she cultivated a, a very muscular, very sort of robust approach and saying there's lots of other markets around the world you know, sunlit uplands. We can trade with anybody. Let's, you know, even even the Canadians. That that that's great as a Canadian. Great to hear. But now, when you are the prime minister, the idea of being able to be a buttress, be a support to one of the most long-standing foreign policy relationships that the United Kingdom has has ever had is important. And not just that. I think ideologically, she's aligned with where Biden himself is in terms of nourishing and supporting democracies around the world, uh, climate change obligations, human rights support, um, supporting, um, you know, sub-Saharan African production of um, green hydrogen, for example. So they, they, their agendas are aligned. And also, I think, you know, Biden, quite frankly, wants to see progress in the Northern Ireland spat um, and would prefer Britain move rather closer, I think, uh, back towards Europe, if not necessarily the European Union. And Professor Yin, post-Brexit, much was made of the UK's pivot towards the Indo-Pacific, um, the AUKUS pact. Do you think that's going to continue to be a focal point? Yes, I think it's very likely that UK will continue that sort of uh, uh, approach, but not because UK would want to carry on the so-called uh, uh, UK wants to be partner with China, wants to be the forefront, so having a good relation with China. But more importantly, this is actually carrying on the Anglo-American um, alliances agenda of leaning, uh, pivoting more towards the Indo-Pacific. UK, in a sense that uh, the the strategic role played by the UK in this Anglo-American alliances is more towards the uh, towards the Europe side, but with the uh, uh, with the events unfolding, particularly the UK Ukrainian crisis at the moment, I think it is there is a joint tendency from both UK and the American side to pivot more towards the Indo-Pacific side on, uh, uh, with China at the uh, focal center. We noticed that uh, um, um, many of the uh, uh, G7 countries have 
but pinpoint that China and India are the two most important uh, obstacles for the sanction against Russia. If the G7 countries want the sanction to be successful, they would have to uh, work their way into uh, crushing China and the Indians' um, sort of um, um, neutral stand in this conflict. Whereas to China, this is near; it is nearly impossible uh, for China to give up its neutral stand in this uh, um, in uh, in this uh, in this crisis because the neutrality um, is on one hand in China's best interest, but on the on the sort of more um, ideological front, neutrality has always been the China's uh, sole principle in the uh in the um in foreign policy making and also it honestly it actually stands pretty well among the third world countries afro-asian other afro-asian countries um the non-alliances movement at the at this uh, at this moment uh, start to pick up its political momentum it is important to notice that the influence of the ukrainian crisis is just is not just upon uh, europe itself or g7 are uh, we want to uh, look at globally but more importantly it's stirs up a different reaction among the Afro-Asian and Latin American countries towards 1950s and 60s uh, non-alliances momentum. And I think this embeds a glimpse of hope for a better or different sort of world order in the future. Thank you very much, Professor Emilia Hadfield and Professor Ji Kuan Hien. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up on a future agenda. After Europe's driest summer on record, how can the continent cope with an ongoing water crisis? But for now, from me, Juliet Mann, and from all of the Agenda team here in London, goodbye.